Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Hi, this is Emily Carney, and along with Eleanor O'Rangers and Tom Hill, I'd like to welcome you to Space 3D, the podcast that discusses a wealth of space topics. On this episode, we continue our tribute to astronaut Al Warden, whose career is largely defined by his role as command module pilot on Apollo 15. This episode features an interview with Dr. James R. Hansen, spaceflight historian and author of 2005's First Man, a biography, the official biography, I should say, of Neil Armstrong, which was adapted into the 2018 hit movie starring Ryan Gosling. Without further comment, here's the interview. First, I'll introduce Dr. James Hansen. He is our guest on today's podcast, and he has written the definitive Neil Armstrong biography called First Man. I believe it came out in 2005, the uh, first edition. As many of you know, in 2018, a film was adapted from this biography, very successful, and it starred uh, Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong. Uh, last year, a book called Dear Neil Armstrong was uh, published, and it and there's going to be a sequel to it coming out pretty soon. And that book catalogs a lot of the various letters and um, correspondence Armstrong received between um, the time he did his moon landing and but to the time of his passing, really. And I was very honored to do the bl uh, blurb for that book. And I'm probably forgetting a lot, but he also did a great biography of uh, astronaut John Young, which is also worth reading. So without really further comment, we'll uh, get to the interview with uh, Dr. James Hansen. So welcome. Well, thank you very much, Emily. It's great to uh, hear your voice and, uh, and to be here to, for the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. So I am aware, obviously, Al Warden consulted for First Man. So I wanted to just ask, what was it like to work with him uh, professionally? What was your working relationship like? What was his personality like? And what did you learn from that entire experience of working with him? Yeah, well, of course, we were all crushed by, by Al's death. Um, I mean, he was... Uh, it's hard to imagine. I mean, there's, it, it, there's, there are people that are just so vital and dynamic. And Al, you know, was obviously in his mid-80s uh, when he died. And I guess he was born in 1932, so 80, 87, 88. Um, but he never seemed his age. I'm not sure he acted his age. Uh, for those, I suppose many listeners have had a chance to meet Al. And I think Al, he was just such a such an alive and, and vibrant person. And uh, I was lucky to spend quite a bit of time with him. I hadn't spent a lot of time. I mean, I had seen him and talked to him some at Space Fest meetings and some other things. But uh, he, when he became, he was brought on, um, thank goodness he, he agreed to do consulting on First Man when it was being shot. You know, so I was with him, you know, daily for a few months. Uh, and of course, Al was more busy on set than I was because uh, there were lots of technical questions that the producers, the director, and the screenwriter had. Well, what was interesting about it is that, you know, most of the questions Al got, I think, had to do with uh, with how to fly the lunar module. 
and of course, Al never flew the lunar module. He was a command module pilot. So it was funny. There are times you can just imagine now, if you, if you know him well, as you do, that Al would uh, go, he would be called up to the platform uh, in the soundstage where the, the replica of the lunar module was uh, being flown on a gimbal. I mean, it was really a cool way they, they did it all. They, of course, won an Oscar for special effects. But Al would be up there. He'd be maybe gone for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, and he'd come back to the chairs where in front of the TV screens where I sat most of the time. And he would say, <laughs> he would say to me, you know, well, I think I bluffed my way through that one, you know. So, I mean, he, he had a lot of insights into, into how the lunar module flew. But at the same time, not being a lunar module pilot, he felt like, you know, there were people that actually could have answered some of the questions, you know, somewhat better than he did. But we were very, very lucky to have him. And he was his, everybody respected him so much, his sense of humor. Uh, he was just, when he was, when he was with you, when he, wherever he was, he was, he was there. I mean, he was, he was not distracted. He was, he was zoned in on what people wanted him, wanted from him and what he could offer them. Uh, and so it was just a really, I mean, just the humanity of, of Al Warden and the sense of humor and the unbelievable intelligence of the man. Yeah. You kind of touched a, a bit on uh, what he was like that he, you know, he was very sharp and very uh, focused. Can you think of any maybe anecdotes that, you know, kind of showed that side of him? Well, I know that, you know, when we were shooting, one of the hardest days of the shoot was the, sh- was the scene of the Apollo fire. Uh, and everybody involved was very concerned about getting that right. And some of the, I mean, some of the historical details of that are still like who said what and when, you know, uh, within the Apollo crew uh, that were lost in the fire. And and to just handle that in the in the in an appropriate way, I think they relied on Al a lot to get that. Done. I don't know if it was in terms of the actual details so much, but to get the tone of it right. But uh, and I remember him having some conversations with uh, Damien Chazelle, the director, and you know they brought Al up very you know up to the platform where the you know where the replica of the Apollo command module was at, and and Al watched. I think even in they even had him look at this after they did they they got the date so called dailies back. Because they wanted, they just wanted to make sure that from the, from a fellow astronaut's point of view, that, that they were handling it in a, in a, in a thoughtful, sensitive, you know, very caring and conscientious way. And so that, that was the most serious that I saw him because I think he knew that they, from all the questions he was getting about that, that they, that there was kind of, they were putting a pretty heavy, heavy responsibility on him. You know, just to make sure they were confident that they were getting, that they were going to have something on film for that scene that was, you know, that was done properly. And I can tell you when I, when we were, when I first time I saw the movie publicly, uh, after it was finished was at the Toronto Film Festival. And I sat next to well, Bonnie White, Bonnie White Bear, Ed White's daughter. And she sat right next to me and had not seen the movie at all. And when that scene started, I, grabbed her hand and held her hand and I could tell tears were running down her, her, her cheeks. And, and afterwards I asked her what she thought of the scene, you know, and, and she, 
she really appreciated it. I mean, it was hard scene, obviously, for her to watch. Uh, it's, it's where her daddy, her daddy dies in the scene. But I think, you know, and I went back to Al, I think, later that evening, and I told him that Bonnie had, you know, what Bonnie had told me and how, how much she respected how the filmmaker had handled the scene. Uh, as hard as it was, you know, and I think Al appreciated me telling him that because he did feel, I think, a special responsibility, not a technical one in that sense, but just to get a, get the tone of that scene correctly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember um, this is kind of has nothing really to do with Al, but uh, I think I remember when um when I saw that movie, you know, and I saw that scene, I, obviously I was I knew that was going to be in the movie, but I, I was not looking forward to seeing that part of the film, you know, for um obvious reasons because it, you know it's it's very tragic, you know, and very emotional. But um I was very impressed with the scene. I felt like it was just done really um tastefully, like uh, you know, it was very accurate and it was done you know, not kind of in, you know, a sensationalized way. It just showed what happened. So I think that speaks of volumes for, you know, Al's input into the film that it was done the correct way. I really only have one more question. Do you have any other favorite anecdotes about Al? Yeah, I do. I definitely, I have another one from the, from the Toronto Film Festival, actually. Of course, the movie at a, at a film festival like Toronto, uh, your film is shown more than once. And there was a showing at a location. We the main premiere of the film had been had been done the night before, and then it was being shown again the next night. And we, I forget what we we were doing some interviews and things, and then we had a have a very quick dinner before we were heading back to another theater where we were going to be sort of waiting in the wings. And then when the movie was over, we were you know we all paraded onto the stage for a Q&A with the, with the audience that had just seen the film. And, the, and that was the whole crew. I mean, it was all, all the main characters. I mean, Gosling and Claire Foy and, and all the rest, and Damien Chazelle, the screen. And Al and I, I mean, we walked up together. We, and so we walked up, and then there was a, a master of ceremonies. I forget who the woman was from the festival. But she wanted to ask Al specifically a question because he was the only, you know, he was the astronaut on the stage. So, of course, when we had gone out to dinner, you know, Al had a cocktail or a cocktail and a half. I, <laughs> I really wasn't counting it, but he had had, a, he had had a cocktail or two. And so the MC asks a question of, of Al, how accurate do you, do you think this movie was? And what do you think of space movies generally? You know, which one is the most accurate that you that you've seen? And... Al took a sort of step forward to answer the question. This is a full, this is a packed audience, you know, in, at the Toronto Film Festival. And Al uh, said, well, I can tell you that the movie Gravity was the worst space movie I've ever, <laughs> I've ever seen. It was so unrealistic. And he just went on and on. And, of course, I looked down the line because, you know, the director of, of that movie was, I believe, Alfonso Cuaron. Who had the movie Roma out at the and was winning, getting rave oh, reviews, no, and no. and you know, and I don't think Alphonse Caron was in the audience necessarily, but I looked okay. down the line of people. I looked down to uh, to Damien in particular, you know, since, since he's the real industry person. But I think Damien was standing next to Ryan, and they were kind of you know had their head down a little bit, chuckling and sort of talking to 
<laughs> but so here, here Al was taking on one of the giants of modern filmmaking about how terrible <laughs> this movie was. And we, I got, I, I got a big kick out of it, you know, cause Al was not going to, Al was Al. Al was going to, I don't think it took a cocktail or a cocktail and a half to, he would have probably said that, you know, if he'd just been drinking coffee, you know, he was going <laughs> to, he was just going to give him his, his answer, but I'll never, I'll never forget that uh, for sure. That's hysterical. One quick question. How was Al chosen as a technical consultant for that movie? I'm just curious if they had considered other living astronauts. And Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really shrewd question to ask. And, and I, don't, I don't think I am absolutely 100% know the answer. I think I have a, a, some insight into it. You might imagine if you're thinking about the film and, and the fact that they're that they in, maybe in particular they need technical consulting on the on on how to how the lunar module was flown, that you wouldn't be picking Al as your first choice again because he wasn't a lunar module pilot. You'd think that they would have picked Dave Scott for right. not only was because he was the commander of an Apollo mission, the one Al was on as command module pilot, but also because uh, Dave. Um, and so Dave, as commander, had flown the lunar module down to, to the moon, and also he had flown Gemini 8 with Neil. So it would make absolute sense that Dave Scott would be the one. Now, and I know that Dave was used, and he did consult directly with the screenwriter and with Damien about the script. And I think they approached him for consulting, and he had consulted, I think, on Apollo 13, and I know he'd also consulted on the HBO miniseries from the earth to the moon that Tom Hanks and Ron Howard had done. So I believe he was in fact asked, and I don't know, I wasn't part of that conversation and I wasn't asked to try to, you know, encourage him or convince him to do it. But for whatever reason that did not work out and whether they approached anyone else or not, um, I, I, I do know that I, and I think Rick Armstrong, you know, Rick and Mark Armstrong, Neil's sons, were very involved with the movie uh, from the start. They reviewed scripts. Of course, both of them were in the film. They both played the scene for the Gemini 8 mission control. Mark had a speaking role. Rick Rick did not. I don't know how that went between the brothers, but anyway. Uh, but but I think, you know, Rick knew knew Al quite well you know, from, from various things, including Space Fest. And I had, I'd known him from Space Fest as well. And knowing Al's personality, I think, I know I had, when we knew that Dave wasn't going to be doing it, I know that I had suggested that Al might be a good person, but I had also said, you know, I'm not sure what he's going to be able to help us with, with the lunar module for sure, you know, as much. So, I think there, the, the first inclination was, in fact, to have Dave Scott consult. And when that didn't work out, they were looking for plan B. I, I can also tell you one more story. This is kind of an inside baseball kind of comment. And, but I did talk about this at my Space Fest talk last year when I talked about, you know, what it was like to have your own book made into a film. So I was telling some stories that maybe I should have, <laughs> should have kept them myself. But, when we, when Al brought, was brought on, uh, I think in the first week that he was brought on, I was standing there talking to him and, and both of us had some concerns about something that was going on that was being shot. 
And I thought we were kind of off to the side, but we were talking and we were talking quietly enough. And one of the producers, I guess, was kind of standing around and he saw, he, he, he overheard what Al and I were talking about. And, and he, the producers, producer came over to me and kind of gave me a, you know, come here finger. And so pulled me to the side and he said, and, and basically in a nutshell, what was said was, you know, gosh, don't do anything that's going to alienate Al from the film because we need him. You know, <laughs> we, we, if we don't have Al, we don't know who we're really going to be able to get, you know? So, and, and then when I went back, Al said, well, what was that about Jim? And I said, well, they were just kind of concerned that I might be, you know, telling you something too candidly about my concern about what was going on in this particular scene. And, you know, again, you, Everybody that knows Al would kind of know how Al said to me something like, Oh, hell with that. You tell me whatever you want to tell me, you know, (laughs) I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. And, and so, uh, but the producers were very, very concerned that, that, that we might lose Al. And if, if Al, you know, somehow if he got the idea that somehow the author of the book was unhappy in some way, well, you know, there was no, there was no chance that I was ever going to say anything to Al that, or could say anything to Al that would alienate him from, you know, from being a technical consultant. There was just some paranoia on the part of the, this one particular producer. Okay. <laughs> All right, Tom, did you, uh, yeah. So my only interaction with Al Warden was when he was on Mr. Rogers. I never, never met him in person. Well, I, I really envy you that because I think he, well, he was on Mr. Rogers neighborhood six or seven times, I think. And I've seen, I found him on YouTube and I've watched most of them, but if you had contact with him then, that's oh, it was really just on special. the show, but uh, that was, you know, it was still, it was neat. So any, any special preparations he talked about for the deep space spacewalk? I mean, you know, being the first person to, to see the entire Earth while you're outside the uh, spacecraft in flight must have been pretty incredible. Yeah, I think I think of all the things that he talked about in terms of space flight, that was clearly the one. I mean, he's the only one that really, you know, to do uh, an EVA and trans-Earth coast on, on the way back, I mean, that had to be, I've, if you look at the photographs of that, you know, this, the photographs we've seen, we've, we've seen and probably remember better are the scenes of EVAs during the, during the shuttle flights. Uh, but Al to do this during Apollo return. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it was, it wasn't a terribly long EVA. I think it was like what, 38 minutes, yeah, maybe, something like long. that. But to be outside of the spacecraft by yourself, you know, um, yeah, he was retrieving, uh, uh, film cassettes. Uh, that was his main, his main task. But, uh, yeah, he was, he was very proud of that. And he also, uh, like to mention how he was in the Guinness Book of Records for being the most remote person from Earth ever. You know, when he was uh, uh, when he was in the command module by himself, and Apollo mates were down on the lunar surface. Uh, I forget exactly what point that was where he was at, but he's listed as the most isolated human being uh, during his time alone when he was in what that was command module Endeavor, I believe. Uh, he orbited the moon seventy. 74 times. I think he was uh, 22,235 miles away from any other human being anywhere in the universe. And that was the two crewmates down on the Oh, gotcha. Earth. So it was so, the layout of the orbit uh, that they had. He happened to be at 
Yeah, yeah I would say it, it was that particular orbit that put him the farthest away. And so, yeah, I mean, he always talked about how what, how wonderful it was to be in the spacecraft all by himself. I mean, <laughs> I often, with the command module pilots, uh, and the ones I know the best are Collins and Mattingly, and, and I know Al quite, knew Al quite well. Sometimes I, I kind of fantasize and think about what they were, you know, I can imagine Al did some talking to himself. <laughs> you know? I can't imagine Al being being totally quiet during you know being by himself for three days. So I think he probably had some nice conversations. I wish I don't know if they ever recorded anything <laughs> when the command knowledge pilots were all by themselves or not. Sort of the Tom yeah, Hanks uh, Wilson type thing, only uh, in an extreme. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I will tell you, however, and this really deserves mention not because of my involvement, but, you know, one thing I did with Al that I spent a lot of time with Al would have been mostly in early 2019, into the summer 2019. There's a company out in Los Angeles called One on One, and they've been using technology developed by the University of Southern California's Institute for Creative Technologies. And we did, well, if you saw 60 Minutes last week, there was a segment on uh, these three-dimensional, almost holographic uh, interviews that were done. In, in the, the original project was the Shoah Foundation, and they interviewed Holocaust survivors. And basically, this really cool technology, you know, you're being recorded from all cameras from all different directions and stereo and all that kind of stuff. And then you, you, you interview them for, oh, 30, 40 hours at least. And then there's an algorithm where you can, uh, you can interact with the recording where if you ask, you know, in this, in the case of the Holocaust survivors, you ask, well, what concentration camp were you at? And through an algorithm and language recognition, it, the, the recording cues to the point in the recording where you get the answer back. And it's like you're really sitting next to, the, next to the person, and they're answering questions. You know, you have a real conversation with them. And if you ask them something crazy, you, you know, uh, that they don't have an answer for, the way the system's been prepared, you know, the, the, the person will say back to you something like, well, could you ask me another question? I don't have an answer for that. So so anyway, um, this person, uh, uh, Susan Josephson, her company, One-on-One, who um, works and got a license with the uh, – USC Institute for Creative Technologies to use this technology. Susan came to me in late 2018 to, um, she wanted to do this with astronauts. And so I contacted a number of all the remaining early astronauts. And the first one that agreed to do it was Al. And so Al came to Los Angeles and I ended up writing about 3,000 questions for him. Because again, you have to anticipate what people can ask, and you have to, and, and that's not just scholarly questions. I mean, because there could be right. What's it like to go to the bathroom in space? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you have to anticipate everything. So I, I wrote question after question after question, and then we got Al to come to Los Angeles, and, and we, he, we, he sat in this studio with all these different, you know, fancy camera equipment around him, and. That has been finished uh, now. We did. We eventually did did them with Walt Cunningham, uh, with uh, Mike Collins, and I think we started one with Charlie Duke. I don't think it's been finished, but the Warden one is essentially done. Although they're still refining the editing of it. 
So we actually have virtual, we have virtual Al Warden. Thank God we have that now. And somehow once, once the final editing for it's done, it's going to be made available to museums, to science centers, to, I mean, I'm not sure where all the company, this company one-on-one will take it, but you'll be able to sit with Al Warden on a big gigantic screen. He's going to be there in three dimensions and you're going to be able to ask Al anything you want to ask him and get an answer back. So we cool. obviously we've lost Al, but we've we, this through this technology, which is amazing stuff with uh, with unlimited potential for what it could do in the future. Uh, we we have we'll never lose him. I mean, we can we have. I mean, not that I through three even through three thousand questions could think of everything to ask him, but we went through you know his entire life story from the time he was born in Michigan with his family and all through his entire career to things. That he's all his poetry, you know, what he thinks about the future. So forevermore, we'll be able to keep talking to Al and keep hearing his charming, intelligent, thoughtful, creative answers. And I, I, that makes me, you know, we've lost him, but it it makes me feel good that we still have him in there. Oh, that's wonderful. Key question, though. Did he have a cocktail in his hand while he was being interviewed? (laughs) We were, I think he might have asked for one (laughs) once or twice. <laughs> wow, that's great. That's really great to know. And I'm glad that you had a chance to write those 3,000 questions for posterity. <laughs> well, I tell you, it's a, it's a challenge. No pressure. I mean, to, especially, you know, what's funny is what we also did do is we brought kids in from public schools uh, to actually sit and ask them questions directly. Because it's one thing we figured, you know, you have to, trying to be as thoughtful about this whole process of how do you do one of these virtual interactive interviews, you know, it's one thing to read off what a kid's question might be. It's a different thing to have the the child ask the question directly to the astronaut because the astronaut, Al or whomever, will react, you know, in a different way, you know, if if he's actually interacting with 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 the child that's asking. So there were children brought in during the taping, the recording of this, to be asking a lot of those questions. Interesting. You had to be very patient. It's one reason Al was a good choice to be the first person to do this for us, because, you know, to sit in a chair for hour upon hour for several days for more, you know, for a few weeks. And they actually had to bring me back to Los Angeles three or four times, I think, to do it, you know, to get because you, you know you need to get you, you need to try to anticipate every possible thing anybody could ask you know yeah. and so we might have in fact I think we probably did ask him what his favorite cocktail was I think we might have that answer <laughs> awesome and I think it I don't know I think it involved vodka I'm not sure what the mix yes. was so. <laughs> probably gray goose I can add one other thing if there's if you would like another a minute of my conversation, you know, Emily, in introducing me, mentioned the the Dear Neil Armstrong Letters book that Purdue published last year. A second volume of those letters actually will come out. It was scheduled to come out in May. And I actually think the content of the second book in terms of the letters, I mean, not, I mean, there's some remarkable, you know, very nice letters in the first volume. But the second volume, I think, because I organized the letters thematically by chat, you know, chat, the chapters were thematic. And I think the themes in the, explored in the second one 
are in some ways more interesting. And there is one, one chapter that deals with uh, people that corresponded with Neil that were other astronauts and uh, air, aviation and space notables of one sort or another. And we actually have, I think, an exchange of three or four letters between Al Warden and Neil. Oh, that, wow. That, that are, that's in, you know, and this would be private it's correspondence that, you know, was not intended to be public, but Al had given me his permission to use them. It's a strange thing about these letters books, you know, that a lot of these letters were written, you know, 50 years ago, uh, back in 1969. But even though they're in the archives at Purdue in Neil Armstrong's collection of papers, if you say, say, for example, if you wrote a letter to Neil back in 1970, you are still the owner of the letter. Even though Neil, you wrote it to Neil and it's in Neil's collection, Purdue feels perfectly confident to keep it in its collection and let people look at it. But for publication purposes, technically, legally, you need to have the authorization of the letter writer. It was really a task on my part to try to hunt down address, even, you know, addresses. You know, who's got the same address from 50 years ago? And a lot of these folks, you know, that were adults at the time are no longer living. So you had to track down you know, heirs to the estates. And so that was really challenging to do, you know, to get those permissions. And it was nice when I was dealing with somebody with like Al Warden, where I just say, you know, I've got some letters that you sent to Neil. Can I, oh yeah, sure. Go ahead. You know, so, uh, but yeah, there's letters, there's letters from Al, there's letters and exchanges between him and Mike Collins and Buzz and, and Jim Irwin and Mitchell and Dave Scott and, Charlie Duke. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just, you know, all the, all the usual suspects that you would think would be writing, <laughs> writing from Neil. So that, that chapter alone is very, very interesting, but there's also chapters that deal. There's one that's dealed with, uh, that deals with, uh, oh, a lot of the crazy letters that he got, um, crazier than anything Emily in the first volume. I mean, people that were different conspiracy theorists, people that, you know, UFO people, uh, people that just were, you know, just crazy, crazy. Some were nasty letters. Then there's a chapter also on, all on religion because a lot of people wrote Neil, um, with their religious views and asking Neil for his religious views, which were, he was, you know, a hundred percent unwilling to, to share with them. Uh, and so there's some really interesting themes in these chapters in this second book, uh, that I think people will be really interested in. The, la the very last chapter, I will say, is of the second book is very, very special because Carol Armstrong, Neil's widow, gave me uh, a, about a hundred of the condolence letters that were sent to her following Neil's death in 2012. I wanted to publish all 100 of them uh, because they were all special. Um, many of them came from, from close friends of Neil's, people that knew them, knew them quite well. And... Uh, but Carol was was really she wanted to make absolutely sure that I had the permission of the person who wrote the condolence letter. So I'm, I, virtually everybody approved that I contacted. I think we end up publishing maybe 85 of those 100 condolence letters. So the letters are themselves very special. Each one of the chapters for the letters I write an introductory essay, and for that chapter. Uh, I actually wrote a, an essay on Neil's death because, um, as you might know, back in last summer, the New York Times uh, 
released stories about Neil's death that made it a public issue for the first time. I knew a lot of the story, but was not going to talk about it. But once it became a public issue, you know, in the New York Times uh, and the family had responded, at least in limited ways, I felt like I should go ahead and, and, and basically tell the story of how, what I knew, what happened to him and how he really died. So that chapter, you know, with those condolence letters, I think was a, is an especially uh, absorbing and, and special chapter. Just a quick note on that. I actually made it to the memorial service at the National Cathedral. I was there for that. That was a very special time. Yeah, I, I was there with, with you, Tom. It was very, very special. And uh, actually, there are letters. I'm not sure if it's in the first volume or the second, but letters between Neil and uh Episcopal minister that uh, was, you know, that was the resident minister in the church. I think the letters date back to the ceremony when the stained glass uh, with the moon, with the fragment of the moon rock placed in the stained glass, which is in the National Cathedral. The communications between Neil and the church, the National Cathedral at that time back in the, I guess that was back in the 70s, I think. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Great questions. I hope I gave you good enough answers and I enjoyed talking with everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Dr. James R. Hansen, and we thank him for his involvement in our tribute. Stay tuned for more memories of Al Warden in an upcoming episode in which we interview artist Michelle Rauch, and we thank you for tuning in to Space 3D.